welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate industry. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing our, our latest market data every week in our weekly video series with the, with the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some more context to the discussion about what's happening, what's happening in the market from the, from the leaders of people who have very different perspective maybe than we do. Each week, Altos tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People, desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. It's been so hot, so competitive, and now suddenly the landscape is maybe changing. So when people ask me, Mike, is can I get the data for my local market? The answer is yes. Go to altosresearch.com. You can book a free consultation, how you use market data in your business. Okay, without further ado, I'm thrilled to introduce my guest today, Adam Osmack. Adam is the chief economist for the Economic Innovation Group and is a, an expert in the functioning of labor markets. His research covers a broad array of economic fields, including demographics. We're going to talk about demographics today, monetary policy, immigration, another topic I'm very interested in. He was most recently the chief economist at UP, where he led research on labor markets, and previously a senior economist at Moody's Analytics, where he managed U.S. demographics, forecasts, and research. Adam, welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. And thanks for having me, Mike. Glad to be here. Awesome. Why don't we start? Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Economic Innovation Group and, and what you're working on there? You just started there, so tell us about that organization and, and what you're doing. So the Economic Innovation Group is a think tank that focuses on economic dynamism. We look at issues like the startup rate, um, you know, labor dynamism, the amount of churn in the labor market, the sorts of turnover and competitive effects that really drive productivity growth and competition and things like that. So we researched, you know, how to make the economy more dynamic and policies that can do that. So for example, you know, we're major proponents of high skilled immigration and we have a policy proposal called the Heartland visas that would allow high skilled immigrants to move, you know, to parts of the US that are struggling demographically losing also proponents of uh, non-compete reform, uh, reform to help there be more churn in the labor market and also, you know, we do research on uh, nimbyism too, you know, how do we make the housing market be more dynamic and competitive? So those are just you know three policy areas, but it, broadly it's like how do we become and how do we get to be a more dynamic economy and showing why that matters. Awesome. Well, uh, a lot of interest, really cool things in there that I'm interested in. Immigration is is one I'm particularly interested in, both from a housing supply standpoint, where there's restricted immigration, restricted home builders, but also in the economic growth sense. I'm curious about the. The, dis, the difference between high-skilled immigration and just all immigration, like a, a free open market there. I'd love to dive in more there. Lots of cool stuff to talk about. Let us let me start with a question, though. We call the top the podcast Top of Mind. What's top of mind for you right now? 
I mean, one of the most top of mind topics for me is uh, remote work and how that's affecting the economy. It's obviously having a huge impact, not just on businesses, but on housing markets too. And I think we're living through uh, a huge experiment in remote working and, you know, uh, a significant chunk of the economy was thrown into remote work overnight when the pandemic hit and businesses and workers have found that it works better than they thought. And so a lot of this is going to be permanent. And I think that has huge, huge implications for how we work, where we live, a variety of things. It's, it's what economists call general purpose technology, which means it doesn't just have this one direct effect, um, but it has tons of spillovers that ripple, you know, throughout the economy and the way we live. A general purpose in the sense like a shift in the way of adding the CPU into the economy was. Like that kind of general purpose, like it's impacting all kinds exactly. of things. That's exactly, you, you wouldn't say like, oh, computers did this one thing, right? Computers did so many things and they affected, you know, not just home, uh, home production and business production, but like up and down the supply chain, every part of the economy touches. Electrification is another example, you know, automobile, you know, combustion engines. You can think of a lot of examples. I think, you know, I, I would I would go so far as to say that we know that we're living through an industrial a new industrial revolution. You know, that would be premature, but I do think that there's a possibility that that, that could happen, that that's how big of a technological change this could be. That's that's amazing. Like I wouldn't say that it's like the industrial revolution, but I say might be like the industrial <laughs> revolution. Um, that's that's incredible. And I read your research recently. You said that that you're expecting 40 million Americans to go to fully remote work. Yeah, so about uh, one out of five workers, I think, is going to be full-time remote. And then another 15% will be what you call hybrid remote, which is sometimes in the office, sometimes not. And 15%, so like it's only 15% there. That My personal experience, everybody around me is like 100% is hybrid. So, but I suppose, what a surprise, my little San Francisco bubble is not representative of the world. But tell me about why it's only 15%. Well, early on in the pandemic, a couple of labor economists did an estimate of how many jobs can potentially be done at home. And like, they were looking at the characteristics of the work and said, okay, based on the way that each, all these different occupation categories work, the things they have to do, 37% is like the theoretical maximum that could work at home. And so like, to be saying like around 35% is, you know, compared to what you would have thought based on the characteristics of work and what seemed like the necessary conditions for working, it's quite high. I mean, there's a lot of part of the, it's just necessarily in person, you know, leisure and hospitality, retail, construction, a lot of manufacturing, you know, you add these up, it becomes a significant chunk of the economy. And so I think probably around 35%, at least in the short run. 35% that are either fully at home, fully remote or, or, or hybrid. Yeah. That's, yeah, that is significant. And what, where were we pre, pre-pandemic, roughly? So there's, you know, a lot of discrepancies, different ways to measure it. Uh, it's actually not measured particularly well. It, it, it just, even, so even when they do care, so the BLS is trying to measure remote work now, and their estimates like 13% is working remote, but like they're way, way off. They're, you know, have a paper that just put out recently showed that the real number is closer to like currently, like probably around 50% are still working at least partially remote. So like 
it's a tough thing to measure. It depends it, it, uh, how you ask and what you're talking about. But you know, pre-pandemic, something maybe like five to eight percent were working like uh, full-time remote, and then maybe like another ten percent part-time remote. Yeah. And does that do those do those numbers shift with job creation? Like, is there evidence that the jobs that are getting created are remote, or are they you know in in like on-premises somewhere? Is there yeah. A trend? So if you if you look at like a job posting data, it has continued the, the job posts for like whether it's Indeed or ZipRecruiter or whoever, they all show that, uh, you know, burning glass data too, they all show that the percent of jobs mentioning remote work keeps going up and up and up and up and up and up. So that is suggesting that um, it's not just like existing jobs being transferred to remote, it's like new jobs being hired into it as well. That's amazing. So let's talk about some of the implications of that. What, are, what, what do you think? What are the first things we should be thinking about as the implications of that? Well, let's talk about geography. Since it's a housing podcast, we'll go there. I think that the two types of remote work have different implications for economic geography. So if you think about hybrid remote first, what does that mean? It means that you know, you're in the office a few days a week. And so the maximum distance that you're willing to commute goes up, right? Like if you got to be in the office five days a week, you know, you probably gonna want to keep it to like an hour over an hour. One direction is a pretty significant commute to do. Um, I've done it, but if you're only having to be in two days a week, you know, that makes a longer commute much more doable or even like one day a week or something like that. So what that does basically is it like expands the commuting zone. Right. So if this is like the downtown, this is how far you used to be willing to drive. So this was your a function. This was your effective labor market. Now your labor market's that big. Right? You've gone from like one hour to two hours. Right. And it's a significant increase in the area that constitutes your labor market. And that then means that like the the housing markets that used to be seen as isolated from good jobs now are seen as having access to good jobs. So the clearest place to see this is if you look at areas that are like two to three to four hours outside of New York City, and they were previously low cost areas, Southern New York State and Northeastern Pennsylvania, if you're familiar with the Pocono region at all. These are areas that were previously fairly low cost, pretty populated, and you know not super high demand. Now, post-pandemic, there's been tremendous amount of uh, uh, pricing pressure there as people who used to live in Manhattan, which has seen like declining relative house prices. You know, Manhattan goes down, the middle area kind of stays the same. And then farther out, Poconos and Northeastern Pennsylvania, they go up. And so that's the first place to look. If you can identify places that are, say, two to three hours from a major employment center, and had low cost of living, that's a pretty strong indicator that, that demand there is going to go up. Factors that would contribute to that additionally would be nice amenities, right? That's an important thing. And then also, if that uh, job center, people previously were commuting into it, if they were a lot of work from home jobs there, like those are factors that are going to con- contribute to that. So that's that's the first place I would look is that sort of like new that new exurban area. Yeah, and those exurban areas we you know attracted in the Hudson Valley. We 
yeah drag it in you know i'm in san francisco and like tahoe just absolutely exploded palm springs from la so what what i've been curious about is the 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 permanence of that trend you know we had a big surge and in my little limited experience though i know people who they were in san francisco they bought in the mountains they did their pandemic there they never sold their san francisco home and now they're here or that you know they and, and so and some of them they've moved back you know they want like well we thought the mountains were going to be good but really you know time to put the kid in school and so they move back to to the city. What do you think about the permanence of those trends? So I think the opposite is actually more likely true, that the trends are going to continue to grow. The reason why is because if you think you are temporarily remote, that is going to uh, have a limited impact on your willingness to move somewhere, right? Like most people, some people, like if you got a ton of money, sure, you'll go buy a second house somewhere you'll live there for a little bit and come back. That's a small fraction of the U.S. economy. Most people, they have one house and they live in that house and they don't move lightly, right? And they don't move for like a, a year or two. So I think what's going to happen is, is people become more sure of their work from home options that gives them the confidence to move. So if you have a job in Manhattan and you are currently, but you don't know whether you're going to be back to the office permanently. Maybe your company hasn't made a decision yet. They're just sort of like, we'll see what happens. It's pretty tough to make the decision then to move like four hours away or something like that, right? Because you're worried you're going to get fully recalled and then have to come back. Now, say your company gives you an extra bit of surety. They say, we're going to do this um, forever, right? So don't worry about it. That's a little bit more surety, but it's not total surety because you may they may fire you someday and then you're living in a place where there aren't a lot of local labor market opportunities or they may change their mind right they may say this isn't working we need to bring everybody back so like what you need to be certain is not just your employer to make the commitment but a variety of employers to make the commitment and to start to feel like the remote labor market is a substantial outside option in and of itself so that you can take that leap to move places where you don't have the local labor market options. And so for that reason, I think as remote work becomes more settled and more understood in that way and, and the opportunity solidified, people are going to say, okay, I can take the riskier move. I can go not just to like, you know, you can go to Hudson Valley, you can go to Poconos, and then you can go to like Montana. You can go way, way far out where you just don't worry about labor markets at all anymore. Yeah. And uh, so, so your research shows that like that because that is a increasing trend it's likely to be a sort of a reinforcing cycle yeah exactly and i think it's a, you can see it in the data too so early on people were looking at take california for example the california policy institute put out a paper in early 2021 that said basically all the moves within california have been relatively short distance and so really Yes, San Francisco losing population, but they're moving to Fresno. They're moving to other parts of San Francisco. San Francisco is not, or California is not losing population. And the moves are short distance. And that sort of was suggestive of like, perhaps it's a permanent thing. Perhaps it's a modest thing. It's not really going to have major impact. They updated their analysis at the end of 2021. And what they found was that moves had increased. People were going farther. They were leaving the state and they were doing it to the extent that actually the state population was clearly declining. And so 
what you've seen is the short run effects are smaller than the medium run effects, which I think are going to be smaller than the long run effects. So any place that's sort of like counting on like everyone coming home and amounts of ma massive bounce back, I think, is being uh, optimistic. Now, it doesn't mean that some places won't see um, population come back, but I think it's going to come back in the form of lower demand, which necessitates lower prices. So you think of like New York, for example, um, you know, New York has, has pretty inelastic housing supply, which means that the demand to live there for the last, you know, uh, two or three decades has been met more by rising prices than by rising quantity. So as demand falls, you're going to find people who want to move to New York on the margin at that lower price and they find it more affordable than they can. So I think that, you know, New York will see lower prices, potentially smaller population, but not dramatically. If you look at other places, they may see uh, more of a quantity effect as well. But you also have to think through the ripple effects. Falling prices, they're hard to absorb, you know? That's bad for property tax revenues and stuff like that. Yeah, 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 for sure. So that the, 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 like the marginal demand is still there, but it's like, the, so, so that, that we get a shift in population, but we're not going to lose. Manhattan's not likely to move, lose people, even if maybe San Francisco does, because everybody's flying to move into New York. Yeah, that's right. And there, the adjustment to that lower price population can be painful in the sense that it often takes a while for, you know, markets to clear when prices are falling. And I mean, actually, the high inflationary background we're facing is kind of helpful in that regard. It should help prices clear a little bit faster. But you still have, um, you know, you may need to see like changes to real estate, for example. So like people might want um, to switch to a bigger square footage. So like that's one of the ways that uh, lower prices can manifest and more demand is that like people will buy more square footage and that's like an adaptation that takes time and also has negative property tax implications or negative income tax implications right because like if if prices fall such that people are like all right i'm willing to move to new york now but i don't want a 400 square foot apartment i want an 800 square foot apartment i'm willing to pay for it now because it's cheaper it takes a while for the housing stock to adjust and then you have one less taxpayer than you used to yeah, interesting. And so, you know, we we called this the phenomenon, the Zoom towns, like the, the places that people move to to be on Zoom. And so just to sum that side up, it's like Zoom towns are a long-term trend and, and likely to keep self-reinforcing there. And does that, so one of the things I try to do, and I'll probably bring it up a couple of times in this conversation is, you know, we've had such a hot housing market. It's been across all price points, across all geographies. And so one of the things I try to do is I, I'm looking for signals of when that changes, when, you know, I, I don't feel to me that it doesn't feel like a bubble, but, but, the, but there's a powerful trend. And so at some point, the trend shifts. Are there seeds in the Zoom town, in the remote work trend? that that either either finally derail this housing market train or maybe accelerate it so the you know the house price growth is is like absurd right and i think the way that remote work affects house prices is going to be to exacerbate it in the short run 
which it has done. And then, but it'll be helpful in the medium to long run. Because I think in general, what you're going to see is demand move from places that don't build to places that do build. And so now the Zoom towns, where you're talking about like a ski area, like that's obviously not an example of a place that will will build. But if you're talking about like, you know, a town in North Carolina or, you know, Florida or South or even, uh, you know, parts of Pennsylvania, these are places that are more likely to build than Manhattan, San Francisco, and the downtown area. So that is a plus for cost of living in the medium to long run. Got it. Yeah, it's like the arbitrage plays out and and those even out long long term. So in general, it's kind of it, you see it as a as a bullish factor for the economy. Oh my gosh! Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, dynamism. Definitely. And, you know, for economic opportunity, too, and, and places that have been sort of falling behind, I think we've had for a few decades now sort of opportunity gets like sucked up by superstar cities and handful of places in the country are the places where you kind of feel like you have to move if you really want to have the best opportunities and you really want to have uh, access to high school jobs. So a lot of the country has been losing their college educated workforce as they leave there move to a handful of superstar cities and then the rest of the country is left with like both a falling and you know an increasingly less educated population because it's the skilled people that are leaving because you know skilled people get the biggest premium from living in those cities i think sort of leaning against that process is going to be something positive and spreading up economic opportunity across the u.s is going to be positive i think it's not good for places when college educated people feel that they have to leave there to pursue opportunity. That's bad for those places. Not just because like it's it's not good for the people who you know may have wanted to stay there but didn't feel that there was opportunity, but it's worse for those people who are left behind, who now the people who would have been entrepreneurial, who would have been, you know, more involved in civic engagement, you know, higher income, higher taxpayers, for those people to be disproportionately leaving, you know, that's an economic problem. Yeah, for sure. And has been for decades, right? And so do you think like Erie, Pennsylvania is going to, people are going to go, hey, why can't I, I can go live there for super cheap and work remote? And like, yeah, you think I you'll think, start seeing some balance out back away from the, like into the Rust Belt? Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, those are, if you look at a place that was previously losing skilled people because they felt that the labor market opportunities there were not good enough. Uh, those are places that are going to on the margin see a benefit. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, Erie, Pennsylvania is going to turn into as desirable of a destination as Orlando, Florida overnight. But that's not what matters when you're talking about what is going to happen on the margin with respect to who leaves and who comes. If it becomes better on the margin, it's better than it was, then it's more of a draw. It's the easier time retaining people. And um, that's the other thing, like, there's will people leave the cities and go back to these places but in the long run part of this is like will people leave in the first place and so if they don't feel like they have to leave that's another way we increase uh population growth there yeah oh fascinating okay so that so that actually let's shift the the discussion to demographics so one of the big reasons that people have been like those are demographic shifts we've got the boomers who are Finally, the late 70s, we have 
the millennials who are really driving a huge chunk of our home buyer demand right now? How do demographics fit into the whole thing? And and then tell me about any like things we should pay attention to demographically. So the millennial generation is a very large generation. And this was already going to probably be a period of high housing demand because they are in their sort of peak home ownership, peak household formation years. And so we were already, you know, 2020 through 2025, or whatever, going to be seeing strong demand for housing as a result of that, that demographic group. So that's like the big demographic factor. But then if you look across, across groups, there was, there was still a large hangover from the Great Recession in terms of both household formation rates, you know, the propensity to like live on your own, um, not live with roommates, not live with your parents, and also home ownership rates. So people are away from roommates, away from parents, step one, and then they become homeowners, step two. Both of those things did not recover fully across demographics groups, not all groups, but most pronounced among the younger groups. But to some extent across most groups, they, they did not recover from the Great Recession. So I think you're going to see some of that once we get to full employment and we're getting some of it now with the you know temporarily strong labor markets. I think those are that's a positive thing to see home ownership rates return. I think you know we were looking at some of us looked at post Great Recession trends as sort of inevitable and fate, but I think or like permanent structural. I think that the return to full employment is going to be positive for 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 those trends. Got it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The 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 millennials have been driving a ton of it now. What do you think about the boomers? And they one of their trends is that they stayed in their homes a lot longer than previous generations. They own everything. So by still holding those, they're keeping home price or home inventory down. What do you see happening there? Are we going to get a flood of boomers finally selling when they hit 80? That's a great question. You know, I think it necessitates sort of post single family options for boomers, right? Or like smaller single family options for boomers. I do think one of the interesting things is, you know, house prices, housing sizes have gone up so much over time um, that like, Boomers are sitting on fairly large houses. And I do think that might have been one thing that was sort of holding back household formation that like, you know, it would have been harder for a 30 year old son to live with his parents in 1960 in a 1960s house where you don't have, you know, space than today when you have like these, you know, not all McMansions, but like, you know, bigger square footage homes with lots of bedrooms, finished basements. It's easier for people to sort of, stay with their boom parents um or their you know boomer siblings or whatever and so i think that that that's sort of an interesting fact that's probably held back formation a bit or made it, it made it easier formation to stay weak that's fascinating the i hadn't thought of it that way but yeah you know you're in your your cliche classic story you know, i had you know my nine siblings in my queen's apartment and you know like you get out as fast as you can, That's right. <laughs> and, but then if you're, you know, I have one and a half siblings, and I'm, you know, I'm in in my my white plain house, like it's a little pretty easier. There is a basement that I can live in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fast. I've never seen it. I've never seen an empirical study on that. I just find the logic to be pretty compelling. 
Yeah, I, I had it never occurred to me before, but that's really true. And and while there's some fluctuation in home size with the economy, it's not going back, right? We're not we're, we're not shrinking from here. So it's interesting to think about because you know the fact that you have so many millennials entering their their like prime formation years. I do think that one of the missing markets is the starter home, and so. You know, to the extent that that's about zoning, I think that that is something we could, you know, lean against. And that might be something that would reduce the average house size if we sort of got rid of the, you know, floor area ratio requirements and, you know, the kind of zoning things that that, that lend us toward bigger single family homes and a lot of smaller things. You think it's largely zoning that's preventing that the the single families from getting built or is it other building costs like labor and things that that all of a sudden you're like if you're to get anything built is going to cost you, you know, 250k. It's hard to well, it's hard to ship a a, a real so, starter home. Yeah, so here's the what I hope. What I hope because you have two periods they're both missing starter homes the post-recession period and also the pandemic period. My hope is that the post-recession period was all about lack of demand. And the post-pandemic period is simply about that temporary supply problems. And that when things get normalized, the demand is back and then the supply is there and we can sort of return to a period of more starter homes. That's the optimistic case. The more pessimistic cases, the reason that you didn't have starter homes in these two very different periods is a matter of regulation and zoning so to me to me that's uh, uh to be determined i hope yeah. that the optimistic case proves true yeah for what sure. do you think well so i i i look at things like the fact that we've had no immigration for a bunch of years so that we don't have home builders so that the home builders we do have are end up focusing on the higher margin properties. And I am, it's probably a good segue to talk about immigration next, but it's like, I don't see how the prices come down dramatically so that those become really good opportunities for new home builders. Maybe there are, there's some zoning changes like in California is trying to add, you know, multifamily everywhere. And some of the cities are becoming aware of it, but like and but but man, it's hard to it's really hard for me to envision how how prices how it becomes more affordable for builders to build low end and therefore make those good moves. I'm not sure how that math works out. Well, I think we are still dealing with labor shortages, right? And also, like you said, all sorts of other types of supply shortages. So, you know, that's an area where it would become easier to build uh, low end houses, right? If those things ease up. Yeah. So let's talk about labor, labor and labor shortages. I know at the uh, the Economic Innovation Group, you are talking about high-skilled labor, a big advocate for high-skilled labor to uh, come into the country. Are home builders high-skilled labor? I would say uh, typically not, although, you know, even though it's, you, you'd argue they are, I, I suppose that some craftsmen would qualify for that. Yeah, that's a good, that's an interesting question. There are real, I mean, there are some real reasons that, you know, the, the cabinet guy is, right. he's a, he's a real craftsman and you can't just go, you know, hire a, a teenage kid to go make, 
make cabinets. So I think to give a slightly more technical answer that there's no platonic idea of what high school means, right? So we can't point to a definite definition that exists. It depends on what context you're talking about. And I think there are certainly many senses in which a cabinet maker uh, craftsman is high skilled in a lot of ways, right? For the purposes of some immigration policies, though, the they may lean on education credentials as the definition of high skill. So to say someone has a bachelor's degree or something like that, and sometimes they might even limit it to be a STEM degree, something like that. So I think in a in a most realistic practical sense, what you're describing is correct. That there are a lot of high skilled people in the trades. I think that seems realistically true whether immigration policy specifically recognizes that that would be dependent on policy yeah do you so so we have a shortage we have a shortage across all skills right now and is there any motion in the biden world that we're going to allow some renewed immigration to help solve some of these things uh if there is i haven't heard it um so I've not heard much discussion yeah. of you. No, I like it. It's just so distressing to me. I'm a I'm super pro immigration, and I feel like immigrants at all skill levels add value to the economy, and so we should maximize immigration. One question I get though, especially on Twitter, when I espouse my position on maximal immigration, is people ask me about the housing impact. Don't don't we just make housing worse by letting a bunch more people in? Yeah. What do you so, think about that in the that argument? Really great question. Really great question. In normal times, on average, the impact of immigration on housing is house prices is more significant than the impact on wages. And so as a like big generalization, yes, that's true. I think it's important to be consistent about that because, you know, this is one reason why post-recession, especially post-house uh, price bust, it didn't make sense to cut immigration to try to strengthen labor markets because that was just going to further weaken housing markets. And post-Great Recession, we were dealing with weak housing markets. And so uh, I argued at the time, and uh, a lot of people did, that we need more immigrants to help boost demand for housing and that that impact was going to be bigger than any impact on uh, wage growth, plus or minus either direction. So I do think as a generalization, that said, I think that there are some reasons why you could make that not be the case and reasons why it would not necessarily always be the case. I think we are now dealing with some acute shortages in some areas and that if we could, that's labor is short relative to demand in those areas. And if you could uh, help increase output in those areas, because of the sort of part of the supply curve that you're on, if you can increase output, you could have pretty strong deflationary impacts. So I do think that there is a case to be made that if you can get immigrants in who are in the acute shortage areas, that the impact on prices would be to reduce them rather than to increase them. The other factor is also that I think you know, immigrants tend to, on their own, go toward cities, more dense cities, and that's going to be places where they tend to build less. And so the impact on house prices is going to be higher versus um, if, you were, if, if they were to embrace like a, a visa, heartland visa proposal, which is what uh, I've written about at, at EIG, that 
uh, allows immigrants to move to places that are demographically struggling. And that's going to have a more positive sum impact on house prices because those are going to be places where house prices have fallen. We have high vacancy rates, issues like that. Neat. That's, I, I do like the, the concept of Heartland View. I like, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an immigration maximalist, but so anywhere we can knock it down and get, get them into. Yeah, exactly. More of, more of every type, you know. Yeah. Okay, that's really fascinating. Let's shift gears uh, to, let's talk about the future, the next significant things that we should be paying attention to in the next, you know, two, three, five years. What do you see on the horizon, economically or, or maybe even specifically to housing? So my hope, if I, if I can think about the optimistic case for the future, my hope is that we can get through the inflationary problems that we're dealing with now more smoothly than we have been and get to a place where we are at full employment, where labor markets are genuinely tight and not tight in a way that's like acute and temporary. Like it, it's not really actually a recipe for progress for businesses to be unable to produce just their normal amount of output to be dealing with screaming labor shortages, right? Like that's not it was one of the, I think, the biggest mistakes of the Biden administration was when businesses were saying we have a labor shortage problem. They mistook that as being a sign of, oh, good, like the labor market is healthy. Not all labor shortages are healthy. And they sort of like had a knee jerk reaction, which is they're like, oh, businesses are complaining they can't find workers. That's good. Like, let's ignore it. Just pay more. Like, that's not a solution to acute shortages at normal demand or like, you know, it's, uh, demand was elevated too. So that was part of the problem. But like, I think that what we need is really tight labor markets due to everyone being back at work, right? Like, so people aren't like on the sidelines, but they actually have jobs. And even though everyone who wants a job has one, then we also have tight labor markets on top of that. And so that we're producing, you know, above and beyond the amount of output that we were, you have a genuinely tight, sustainably tight economy in a way that it's not going to like, you're going to have an increase in labor supply and then wages are going to have to fall. And like, it's just, I, that's the genuinely healthy labor market I hope we can get to. And I think if we can do that, do it on a sustainable basis, because we've gotten better at monetary and fiscal policy, that I think that's going to generate a lot of positive spillovers for the economy that people aren't necessarily expecting. And I think we're getting some samples of that, some tastes of that today in like the housing markets and consumer durables. Like this is what a more normal economy is going to look like when we're actually at full employment. People were sort of tricked by the post-Great Recession era about what normal should look like. And I don't think that that was normal. I think that that was a hangover. And we can get beyond that hangover. That's uh, that's really amazing. So, do you, so you said if we can get past the current inflation challenges because we we are smarter at monetary and fiscal policy, do you believe that we are smarter at monetary and fiscal policy, sort of in general right now? Have we grown well, there? Yes and no. So we learned one important mistake from the long recovery from the Great Recession. And now we're learning another mistake, right? Law, the, the mistake and the Great Recession is that we underspent for that. We is underspent that... 
that was the first mistake, not enough fiscal fiscal spending. But then we also started raising rates way too early. Like we were raising rates, you know, in 2015 when the economy was clearly, you know, 2019 pre-pandemic, we weren't at full employment yet. So we started raising rates four years, four, at least four years before the economy had reached full, huge mistake, all about underestimating the potential of the economy and mistaking temporary problems for permanent problems. And you were saying, you said we were, we were not at full employment because we, unemployment was still falling, but inflation wasn't rising. So that's right. Like, you're like, there's still room to go until we hit an inflection point. That's right. So, you know, maybe we had another two years left, which means that, you know, we would just be 2021 would have been hitting full employment, maybe 2020, something like that. Like, so that means we had started raising rates six, seven years before full employment. Think of how crazy that sounds now, right? In retrospect. And I think people get that. Certainly the Fed gets it. Now, of course, we've had people learn a little bit of mistakes on the other side too, which is that yes, you can spend too much too fast. And you know, now we just we just have to have a more holistic view that it's possible to spend too little. It's possible to spend too much. You know, don't underestimate the economy, but also don't try to push GDP to 7% above potential in one quarter, you know? Yeah. Which oh, was, right. I, frankly, it was not a lesson that I think we needed to have. I think both times, I think it was, they were avoidable mistakes, unfortunately. But I, my hope is that on the other side of two very different shocks, two very different policy mistakes that we'll do, you know, have learned. That's okay. So, and right now though, we're in, we're in big inflation and we're also in a tightening cycle, right? We're starting to tighten into it. Are you, what do you think about recession? Like, are we, we're almost uh, inverted on our yield curve is, is recession coming? We're going to just hike our way. I would say pre-Ukraine, I was pretty optimistic. So I think that pre-Ukraine, we really were about to be entering a durable turn where the durables boom turned into a mild durables bust. I think, I think some of the spending on durables was new household formation. We really didn't build that many new houses. We didn't build that many new apartments. So it's not that formation. We just don't have, we didn't have the capacity to absorb that much formation. So I think a lot of the durable spending was pulling from the future. And so when you pull from the future, that's eventually going to come back to bite you with lower demand at some point. I think that that's the period we were getting ready to enter. And I hope we are getting ready to enter it because when you're at that part of the supply curve where you're just like prices, you're not making that much more, you know, and you're just bidding prices up, 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 up. It's sort of, you, you ride that up and you ride it back down, right? You ride up the vertical supply curve, you ride it back down. And my hope would be that a mild durable bust would be provide the deflationary pressure we need Meanwhile, services continue to rebound and are able to absorb any workers displaced from that and that inflation will normalize. That was my outlook. I'm more concerned now because of the impact of the Ukraine crisis on energy prices. And um, I would say it's still my view that the Dorables turn is coming and that's going to provide the Fed enough comfort. Even if you know headline inflation remains high, if they see some of these durable prices quickly heading in the right direction, that's going to give them the confidence to not overdo it. But it certainly is a risk that energy prices are going to hit us hard and start spreading throughout the economy and sort of cause the Fed to be concerned that we'd be looking at 
too long of a period of headline inflation. Even if a lot of that is energy prices, which we're supposed to look through, they're going to worry it's going to become an anchor and they're going to go too fast on the hikes. They're going to cause a mild recession. That's my concern. I'm still think the most likely outcome is the more optimistic one. But if we don't see that durable turn start showing up the next few months, the Fed is going to be, their hand is going to be pretty forced to start raising faster. Right. So that's the that's the trick. So the durables term meeting, watching the in the inflation numbers, consumer durables, things like washing machines and stuff like that, which have been going nuts. Right. Prices so far have been going nuts this year. And so we'll be watching for them to to start declining. And if they start declining, then that means that the Fed is going to can assume that inflation will be cooling and therefore won't be feel as, as compelled to hike rates correct the other part of it is and it'd be one of the things that's helping to drive normalization is normally when you look at a recovery from a recession you're seeing the kind of massive job growth that we're seeing it's a sign that labor demand is getting stronger which is inflationary because that means wage growth is going to get stronger but labor demand has been strong for you know a year now what we're not what we're seeing these hundreds of thousands of jobs every month is not stronger labor demand, it's stronger labor supply, which is totally different than the normal jobs recovery. People are coming back to work. And so that's not going to be inflationary. That's going to be um, disinflationary because businesses are going to have an easier time finding the workers. They're going to be able to increase output. They're going to be able to not have to pay as much. So declining pressure on wages. So you can't look at your normal business cycle correlations right now. You can't say, Jobs are growing fast, aka that's inflationary. It doesn't work when you switch labor demand for labor supply growth. That's fascinating. So jobs are growing, but it's they're growing because like the the some of the boomers who retired early are now unretiring. Exactly. Huh. That's super cool. Okay, so so then let's say we uh, durables blow through and and we have to keep hiking. And then we roll into, you've called it a mild recession. And, you know, this is one of the things on my mind. So is in a mild recession, a recession coming, I assumed when we had the first COVID lockdown, we threw, lost a million jobs. I started doing our weekly videos with our data because we assumed the market was going to crash. Everybody's out of work. Demand's going to crater. Market's going to crash. there's three weeks of crash and then, and then it recovered. So, you know, one of my things I've been kind of publicly speculating about recently is what if in a, in a 2023 recession, the American homeowner says, gee, I have a 3% mortgage locked in forever. I got a ton of equity. And even though, you know, my rents have been climbing for a long time, and so, and, and there's still inflation, like, even if I'm worried about jobs or things like that, like, what if in that recessionary environment, the thing I say, the most important thing for me to do is not sell my house? Like, does a, does housing hold up in a, or even, you know, help pull us out of a next of a potential recession or is there another scenario where like you know the knee-jerk reaction is oh recession's going to happen people are going to start panicking and they're going to sell everything what do you think is most more likely in a it, for housing in the next recession uh it's a great question um 
there's two sides of this ledger. So on the one side, I think you have this sort of structural factors pushing for more housing demand, the millennial household formation, remote work, making housing more affordable, pushing people to buy housing in the areas where they build more. Those are structural factors that I don't think are going to be significantly dinged by, a, especially what would probably be a mind recession, right? Like the Fed raising rates too fast. I, I don't think inflation has, has become so unanchored that they really need to like go wild. This isn't 1982 or whatever. Powell's not going to have to pull a Volcker moment, I don't think. So I don't think we're going to have a kind of major crash that's going to like upset those structural things. And in that case, I do think you're right. Those Those forces because they've got structural momentum behind them could be something that helps push us through that correction. What I would say on the other hand is the extent to which house prices have become so divorced from fundamentals is the kind of thing that doesn't usually, right? And it's really easy to look in history and always say, well, this time is different with house prices, but like, it just, this isn't very scientific, right? To say this, but when house prices get that high, it just your spidey sense goes off of this doesn't you know this is risk right like this is risk that we are in a mispricing point so that's not my forecast but when house prices have moved that much you can't not think of it as a risk you absolutely have to think of it as a risk great 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 way to sort of wrap up the, the thinking there we already blew through an hour but so let's uh, let's wrap up with so you you at upwork you did some great really readable publications stuff are is that what are you what are you doing at at economic innovation group and and like is is that are they are they going to be you know twitterable <laughs> research yeah yeah i only do easy to understand stuff Good. that's that's all that i do so <laughs> yeah so yeah it'll still be public facing research and reports and i'm still going to be doing remote work stuff for sure there's still so many um, important questions to address there and so much important research, including on the housing market. There's like really, there's a lot of, I think, undiscussed areas of remote work and housing so far, especially when you talk about the impact on the future. How does remote work change the type of communities we build? How does it open up possibilities for new ways of living, new types of communities and new places. There's so much, so much there. And that's just part of it. So yeah, uh, long answer short, I'm definitely going to be keep producing readable research. That's great. Where can people find you? Oh, uh, you can find me at Twitter on model behavior. Model um, behavior. Yep. Yep. That's, that's the best best place to find it. best place to find it. terrific adam thank you so much for the time today it was really informative i'd love to to get the context around the data so validate some of my hypotheses and and really plant some seeds for me for good thinking thank you so much and we i look forward to much more with you thanks glad to be here thanks for listening to top of mind See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.